Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Walter Isaacson about The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. In addition to Dr. Doudna's sharing of the Nobel Prize for the Adventure of CRISPR, we talk about the ongoing patent challenge and human nature in the global community of scientists. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft takes us through the slate of winners of the $6 million Rapid COVID Screening X Prize. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, I interviewed Columbia University professor Brian Greene, the author of The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes, and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos. I asked him what he meant by parallel or multiple universes. Well, there was a time until pretty recently that whenever we use the word universe, we had the traditional notion in mind, everything, you know, the whole totality. And what's happened in physics in the last couple of decades is we've been led to ideas that suggest that what we thought to be everything is a real tiny part of a much bigger whole in which our universe would be perhaps one of many universes. And that's what's led to this idea of multiverse, multiple universes. You know, I think it was over 10 years ago that Sir Martin Rees, who I believe is now Lord Martin Rees, he came and was talking about multiverse, you know, and it was the first time that I'd really heard about it. And I have to tell you, there were a number of people, there were sort of two reactions. One were the science fiction people saying, we told you so, we told you so. And then there was this other set of people who were really quite upset by what he was saying. Yes, Martin was one of the early proponents of this idea. And it is a surprising one. It is one that does seem at first sight, perhaps even to step outside of science. I mean, if what we see out in the cosmos is all we have access to, if all we have access to is our universe, in what scientific sense can you talk about other universes? Can you visit them? Can you experiment? Can you observe them? And if not, are you still doing science? This is not a fringe idea in physics any longer. Many people are spending a lot of time thinking about this idea. If it's not right, a lot of energy is being wasted. But if it is correct, I mean, think about it. This would be the biggest revolution in our thinking about reality that we've ever encountered, our universe being one of many. Holy moly. Well, Martin Rees had that very simple argument. Hey, we had one Big Bang. Why wouldn't there be more? That is the simplest argument for how you could come to this idea. And it goes even further than that. Because when you think about the Big Bang Theory, we all have in mind that the universe began very small and then erupted with space going through this rapid expansion and matter coalescing into stars and galaxies. But there's an aspect of the Big Bang Theory that we don't emphasize enough, which is the traditional Big Bang Theory tells us nothing about what happened at the very beginning. It doesn't tell us what happened at time zero. And we've been struggling to fill in the bang in the Big Bang Inflationary cosmology, as it's called, is a proposal for filling in the bang. And when you study the mathematics of this approach, 
it leads to that very idea that Martin was talking about, that the Big Bang was not a unique event, that there could be many Big Bangs happening all over the universe, each giving rise to its own cosmos. So our everything would be the result of one Big Bang, but there'd be other everythings coming from the other Big Bangs. Some of the parallel universes, uh, the holographic universes, though, that's those are pretty interesting. That's the strangest of all of the multiverse proposals, I have to tell you. It comes out of string theory. And the idea is that according to the math of string theory, everything that we see in the world around us may be in some sense a holographic projection of laws of physics that operate on some distant bounding surface that surround us. And we, we call it a holographic idea because you're familiar with an ordinary hologram. What is that? Well, that's a, a little piece of plastic that has all these etches and swirls on it. You illuminate it with a laser and that creates a realistic three-dimensional image. The idea is that the distant bounding surface where the laws of physics may actually reside would be like the thin piece of plastic and then the laws of physics themselves illuminate in a way that creates the three-dimensional reality that we're familiar with. So the idea would be as I move my hand or scratch my head there's a parallel process that's happening on this distant surface that in some sense may even be more fundamental than the reality that we experience. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with Brian Green. Dr. Green continues to be a professor at Columbia University, where he directs the Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics. His most recent book was just published in February 2020. It's entitled, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Walter Isaacson. You likely know him from his earlier biographies of Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci. He's here today with the Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, describes the wide range of winning technologies in the $6 million Rapid COVID Screening XPRIZE. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Walter Isaacson. Now, Walter, welcome back to the program. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, always great to be back with you. As often happens, the first tool we build for anything seems clunky in retrospect, but it works. In fact, the entire biotech industry is based on the fact that we can actually edit DNA. One example would be Genentech, which started in 1976, and insulin and human growth hormone as the first approved products in the early 1980s. So we've used genetically edited products ever since, but today we've evolved even more products like personalized gene therapies where we use our genes, modify them, and feed them back to us in order to fight, say, cancer. 
but tools never stay the same. Technology always gets better, faster, cheaper. And that is not easy in life sciences. But that's the path we're talking about today. So before we get to Jennifer Doudna and all the great scientists you've written about, what is CRISPR in English, if you will? And how is it a step forward from the existing gene editing tools we've been using? Well, CRISPR is a system that bacteria have been using for a billion years. And what it is, is they can take a mugshot of any virus that attacks them and then use an enzyme, a, a molecular scissors. They can guide it. If that uh, virus attacks again, they just chop up the genetic material of the virus. When Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier and others figured out the components of that bacterial system, they had an aha moment. They said, we can reprogram the guide to cut a human sequence of DNA, to edit a human gene. And so this became an easy to reprogram, fast genetic editing tool for humans. Now, for several years now, CRISPR has been the basis for a goodly number of biotech startups, and each had specific applications in mind. But as you begin your book, at the start of the COVID pandemic, Jennifer Doudna is meeting with a number of scientists for one purpose. How can they utilize CRISPR to fight COVID? What happened there? Well, as I said, it's something bacteria have been using to fight viruses for a billion years. So they said, why not adopt it for this purpose, fighting our own coronavirus uh, pandemic? And so Jennifer Doudna one night had sent her kid, Andy, a 17-year-old son, off to robot building camp, one of those Dean Kamen first robotics camps. And uh, Jennifer woke up her husband at 2 a.m. said, we got to go get Andy. This pandemic is spreading. I don't want him to be at the convention center in Fresno. Andy's an only child. So when they arrived early in the morning, he was like rolling his eyes. But as they were leaving the parking lot, they got a text saying robotics competition canceled. And that's when Jennifer Doudna knew that they had to turn their attention to fighting this uh, new pandemic. So she gathers about 50 researchers from the Bay Area, some in person, some on Zoom, and they start using CRISPR to do many things. One, to become a detection technology that will easily and quickly detect the coronavirus, just like bacteria can use it to detect viruses. They also found ways uh, to have uh, new antivirals that may be coming along in a year or two. In other words, don't use vaccines that kick up our immune system, just kill the virus. And of course, as the final frontier, which is a little bit uh, more problematic, which is a Chinese scientist has already shown that you can edit embryos of children or edit reproductive cells to eliminate the receptor for certain viruses. So those are the among the many things that CRISPR will be able to do. Uh, and that's what Jennifer Dowd and her rivals over at the Broad Institute and MIT Harvard also turned their attention to using gene editing technology and CRISPR and other such technologies as a way to fight coronavirus. It's not easy to be a scientist at the level at which Jennifer is. And I have to say that I'm very interested in how you get there. So I was looking throughout your book 
for some of the keys to that. And Jennifer was very close to her father. Her father was a professor at the University of Hawaii. And while he left the famous book, The Double Helix, on her bed as a girl, the James Watson book about the discovery of DNA, I was also interested when she, as a professor and her graduate student research partner at the time, Jamie Kate, were finally figuring out the structure of RNA. Watson and Crick, they talked about the structure of DNA with Rosalind Franklin, figured it out. But now they were talking about the structure of RNA. It's DNA read by RNA, which produces the proteins. Now, Jennifer Doudna was with her father, who was in the final stages of cancer. And I found that interaction very telling. Tell us about that. Well, she realized that the clue to any mystery and the way life works involves often the structure of a molecule, how it twists and folds. And that's what um, Rosalind Franklin, Watson and Crick did with DNA. And so as a graduate student and then as a postdoc, she ended up saying, all right, I'm going to help figure out the structure of RNA. And among other things, she understood how RNA could replicate itself and thus was the source of all life on this planet. And what she was doing then with her then uh, research partner, later her husband, Jamie Kate, was figuring out exactly the components and the structure of this self-replicating RNA. And her father was in Hawaii in the last stages of his battle against cancer, and she would sit there and bring some of the images that were sent to her uh, from New Haven by her research team. Uh, she would print them out and she would show them to him. And he was always curious about how things really worked. And of course, he was the one who had set her on this path by giving her the double helix when she was just in sixth grade. And so she said that explaining this to him helped her understand it, but helped give this whole process a lot more meaning to her because it just felt that generation after generation, here we go through life on this planet and we understand step by step just a little bit more about the miracles of nature. And look at that interaction. It wasn't just, hey, Dad, how you feeling today? <laughs> it's like he's, he's in bed, can't get up out of bed, coming close to the end of his life, and they're discussing this. And this was not his field. So, I mean, that ability to interact with your children or be interacted with is enormously important in the path in life. It helped set her on that path that he was curious about nature when she was just in sixth grade, and she became curious about nature. And by putting that book, it put her on the path. But I hope that all of your listeners, when they're asking, what can I do for my daughter or my son? What can I do for my nephew or my niece? First of all, show your own sense of curiosity about nature, your own sense of curiosity about how does that vaccine really work? Or how does this editing tool really work? I think we do a disservice to our kids when they, we do two different types of things. First, when we say, oh, I don't understand science. I could never understand how a vaccine works. Oh, I don't know what gene editing is all about. You know, if you said that about a sports team, then your kid wouldn't be interested in sports. If you say that about nature, then your kid's not going to be interested in nature. And the other thing is kids are very naturally curious growing up. They're in their wonder years. And we all were that way when we were growing up, especially Jennifer Doudna and the people I write about. 
But then grown-ups far too often say things like, well, quit asking so many questions, and we lose that sense of curiosity and wonder. So I'm hoping, just as when Jennifer read this book in sixth grade, you know, people will read this book, they'll say, oh, I love the mysteries of nature and life. That's kind of cool. I'll talk about it to my kids. And by the way, I'll leave this book now that I've finished it on their bed, so maybe they'll get inspired. And it goes the other way as well. You write... He took her seriously. This wasn't the first time he took her seriously. He'd been listening to her as well her whole life. That interaction is a complete setup for how you can proceed forward in these very, very challenging careers. And she, he believed that women could make it in the sciences, even though her own school guidance counselor told her, girls don't do science. And when she was at Pomona College studying chemistry, and she did well in chemistry. She told her dad where she was going to be applying to go to graduate school. And he said, why not Harvard? And she said, oh, dad, I'll never get into Harvard. And he said, you're right. She'll never get in if you don't apply. So she applied and she got into Harvard. And that helped her work with Jack Shostak, who won the Nobel Prize for uh, understanding the structure of self-replicating RNA that we just talked about. And it was her dad who believed in her and her dad who pushed her but her dad also didn't put too much pressure on her, just pushed her by asking questions and saying, I'm curious about what you're doing. Explain it to me. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Walter Isaacson. You likely know him from his earlier books, including his biographies of Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, and Benjamin Franklin. A professor of history at Tulane University, he's here today with The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. What Jennifer Doudna was working on in while we were talking about this interaction with her father was discovering the structure of RNA and recalling that RNA picks out pieces of DNA in order to produce proteins. This discovery of the structure of DNA was extremely important. It's nature's tool in itself. So therefore, it could become a tool for humanity. So understanding that structure, breaking the code on how RNA is structured, enabled her to move forward and all the scientists to move forward to grasp that as a tool for humans. You know, DNA is the more famous molecule. Uh, it gets on magazine covers. But like a lot of famous siblings, it actually doesn't do much work. As you said, it sits there in the nucleus of our cell and just curates information. What RNA does is it goes and takes that information and then goes to the outer region of the cell and says, okay, build a protein. And we can use that messenger function of RNA as we do with our new vaccines to say, okay, build the spike uh, protein from a coronavirus or a fragment of it. And that gives us immunity to the coronavirus. We can also use it the way Jennifer did as a guide, because what she discovered about CRISPR technology is that when bacteria use it to cut up invading viruses, they uh, enlist a tiny fragment of RNA to be a guide that will take the enzyme, which is like a pair of scissors, to the exact right spot uh, on the genetic material you want to cut. So we have both guide RNAs and messenger RNAs. 
but they're all pretty simple and they all have those four letter codes, which means we can reprogram. For example, if the spike protein mutates or becomes a variant as it's doing, we can say, okay, let's just recode that piece of RNA that's a messenger. So we're making a vaccine that can knock out the new variants. And if we want to edit a different gene, we say, okay, let's recode the guide RNA so it chops at a different place on our genome. And uh, that is why, you know, I like to say that molecules have become the new microchips. Not only are they incredibly powerful, but they're programmable. And just as our kids, you know, you talk about how we raise our kids, I made sure, you know, my daughter learned very well computer coding and she was comfortable with uh, computers. But I think this next generation is going to have to be comfortable not only with digital coding, but understanding the code of life. And to change the code, the order of the code, the programming of DNA or RNA, you really only simply have to change the order of letters, GCAT, which represents the nucleotides. So you're starting with a computer as well. You're not having to go into a lab and do all of this juggling. Uh, in fact, you describe what it was like actually making these kind of changes using CRISPR-Cas9. Yeah, I went into Jennifer Dowden's lab because when I was growing up, one of the phrases at my school was, we learned to do by doing. And I figured at a certain point, now that I'd met all these incredibly wonderful graduate students who were uh, pushing the field forward of gene editing, that, well, I should just actually learn to do it. So with the help of a couple of graduate students in Jennifer's lab, uh, Gavin Knott and Jenny Hamilton, you know, I spent a couple of days with the CRISPR material, uh, which anybody can, you can order it online. This is not all that complicated. And using it to edit a uh, bacterial cell at first, which is what Jennifer Doudna's 2012 experiment was. And then six or eight months later, they are able to do it in human cells. Fong Zhang does it that way, George Church, and then Jennifer Doudna. And I wanted to say, okay, let me take that step as well. And I was able to edit. As you know, you put in a little a reporter molecule, a you know phosphorescent thing that glows. And I was able to look and went, wow, I just edited a human kidney cell, it was. That's the one we used. Now, don't worry. We flushed it down the drain with a whole lot of chlorine, so it's not part of the planet at the moment. But this is why we all have to understand this new technology because it's not like when I wrote about Einstein and wrote about atom bombs, you know, you and I are never going to make an atom bomb in our garage or in our dorm room, but or in our biology labs, but we'll be able to do or, you know, our kids will be able to do genetic editing tricks and eventually have to decide, well, should I not flush them down the drain? Should I use this to make vaccines? Should I use it to make therapeutics that edit human cells? Should I use it in in vitro fertilization to edit the embryos and fertilized eggs of the children that I'm going to have? So those are the moral issues that Jennifer, uh, in this book, along with her other colleagues, uh, begins to wrestle with. Now, there are two women scientists here, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. I don't know if I've mispronounced that or not. I'm sure you can correct me here. How are they similar? How are they different? Emmanuel Charpentier is very much a peripatetic uh, uh, researcher, 
born in Paris, and every two or three years just uproots herself, takes her pipettes and test tubes, and moves from Paris then to Vienna, to Memphis, Tennessee, to New York, to Umea, Sweden, where she was working. Now, then Vienna, or before that Vienna, and now Berlin. So in some ways, she's more of a lone ranger than Jennifer, who's a great team builder. And uh, Emmanuel Charpentier is also an incredibly charming person. She really is deeply engaged in her research, but she's uh, got a good sense of humanity and uh, trust. Uh, she's a mainly a microbiologist. Her specialty is dealing with bacteria and other tiny organisms. Jennifer is mainly a biochemist, uh, dealing with the chemistry and the test tube of the molecules of life, and to some extent, a structural biologist. You had to put all those talents together in order to do the amazing 2012 discoveries and inventions that win them jointly the Nobel Prize this past October. I find uh, you know, Jennifer just incredibly easygoing, somebody who's fun to be with and earnest and uh, uh, very embracing. There's a slight aloofness to Emmanuel Charpentier, which I like. You know, when I was hanging with her in Berlin, we'd go to art galleries together, to dinners, uh, but she had a wry smile on her face I would never want to play a good game of poker with Emmanuel because I could never read exactly that Mona Lisa smile that she sometimes had on her face. As you so rightly point out, science is a team sport, both within a lab team or partner researchers such as Jennifer and Emmanuel. And around the world, multiple scientists, multiple labs were working on CRISPR. And when progress is being made, everyone is after it. Everyone's trying to get published and in peer-reviewed journals. And when a paper comes in, the journal generally refers to people who are also in that area. So it's like there is a log jam. There's a traffic jam. I can't review that. I'm writing a paper about it, and I certainly can't read it because then it might look like I took your work. And I mean, that's a real problem. And this happened for Jennifer. Yes, um, it was very interesting to see both the cooperation but also the competition and the rivalry. And it's a race. It's a race to discover things. And then, of course, in science, especially in research science, uh, you only get the chance to say you discovered something if you published first. And so you have uh, journals like Science and Nature and Cell and others. And uh, as soon as people in 2012 are making their discoveries, they'd hear footsteps, as Jennifer did with, a, um, you know, groups from around the world, actually. She didn't quite know who else might be publishing on this. So she pushed hard to get it in print, and she had indeed been sent a paper, or not the paper, but she'd been asked, would she peer review a paper on the same topic? And she said, no, no, I'm conflicted because I'm trying to publish one myself. What's interesting to me is that when they turn their attention, these labs, to the coronavirus, when the Broad Institute and Fong Zhang and his company, Sherlock, turns their attention of having detection tools for the coronavirus. And likewise, when Jennifer and her Berkeley lab and her consortium of 50 scientists in the Bay Area and her company, uh, Mammoth and Caribou, uh, they start publishing not in peer-reviewed journals and not where they apply for patents. They start publishing on open source um, 
you know, bio archive and med archive, which are online, instant, almost instant publications. And they're saying, we're putting this out there for any researcher who's fighting COVID uh, to use. We're not asserting intellectual property rights for this. So I think that helped turn their attention to the race to publish and patent from, from the race to publish and patent and turn their attention to the race to help humanity. I'm speaking with Walter Isaacson. His book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft gives us a close-up view of the winning entries in the $6 million Rapid COVID Screening XPRIZE. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Walter Isaacson, the author of The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. It's interesting the timing on this because patenting is hugely important. No patent, no intellectual property, no company. And until 2013 uh, in the United States, it was uh, who was the first to invent? So someone else could file a patent and lose it because you could prove, say from your lab notebook, that you had in fact invented it first. And uh, uh, But then in 2013, it was the first to patent. So let's talk about Feng Zhang. Feng Zhang is a young researcher born in China and uh, raised in Iowa. So he has that earnest, cheery, sort of heartwarming uh, nature and personality of a corn-fed Iowa kid who turns out to be real smart. His parents want him to learn computer science, but he realizes that biological and life sciences and the code of life are more interesting. 
So he goes to Harvard, studies under George Church, and in 2012, just when Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were publishing their paper on how you would turn this bacterial system of CRISPR into a gene editing tool, uh, he was working on ways to make gene editing work in human cells. And so there were a couple of others, as you know, you know, ZFNs and Talons and all these clunky systems people were trying to use for gene editing. And so when he heard of CRISPR, he wanted to show how it could work in human cells. And so in the second half of 2012, there's a great race. Five labs all do it around the world within about six months. And in January of 2013, they all file uh, for patents and they all publish papers on how do you take CRISPR and make sure you can optimize it so that it would work well in a human cell with a nucleus, not just in bacteria. And Feng Zhang's paper, along with his former professor and mentor, George Church, are both published the exact same time, the beginning of January 2013. Jennifer's is published also in January 2013, her paper about how you turn her 2012 discovery into something that works in humans, but it was about two and a half weeks later. But what's relevant for this is that Fong Zhang quietly had applied for a patent a few months earlier and had expedited his patent application, which you can do with a little bit of extra money, but also some caveats you put in. And so he gets his patent issued first. And then Jennifer Doudna gets her own patents issued, and they kind of overlap. And this has been a four-year patent battle in Washington, D.C., between these two groups. And as you said, rightly, it's complicated because it wasn't now the who filed first. It's who actually invented it first. So that means they have to show their notebook pages, and they have to say, here's an experiment that worked. And I think both sides feel that the other sides are exaggerating. Uh, what they actually discovered, that their data doesn't really show on a particular day that they had fully proven it worked. And so it's going to be a complicated trial. I had hoped, not even prodded both sides a bit, why don't you just call each other and do what the uh, people like Bob Noyce, who ran Intel, did with the people like Jack Kilby, who ran Texas Instruments, when they were fighting over the patent for a microchip, and Bob Noyce basically says, let's quit fighting over divvying up the proceeds until we finish robbing the stagecoach. And they shook hands and crossed license. Well, that hasn't happened yet. This mammoth patent battle is still going on. If there's one thing that Jennifer Doudna is known for, it's for her call for reticence in using CRISPR-Cas9 until a great deal of thought is given to its bioethical use. What's so dangerous about it? What might happen? Well, she had a dream right after she made her discovery about how to create this gene editing tool from CRISPR. And it was somebody who wanted to understand the tool, and she walks in the room, and it's Hitler. And that just, she gets taken aback. And she says, we got to keep this from falling in the wrong hands. And the problem is not using it the way we have been using it, 
to cure bad genetic diseases. For example, it's already been used to cure a woman down in Mississippi of sickle cell. It's been used on cancer at the University of Pennsylvania and in China. It's been used at the University of Washington for congenital blindness in a patient. But then a Chinese doctor in late 2018 used it to edit early stage embryos. And when you do early stage embryos and re reproductive cells, that means the edit isn't just in that patient, but it's in all their children and all their descendants. You've basically edited the human race. Now, what did the Chinese doctor do? He made an edit that got rid of the receptor, that you know, got rid of the gene that allows a receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, because he wanted this chi these children, and for that matter, all of their descendants, never to get AIDS. Now, people were shocked. It was premature. It wasn't necessarily safe. But it was also crossing that philosophical line of making an inheritable edit in the species. Now, you ask, what's wrong with that? Well, when we got hit by the coronavirus pandemic, I think a lot of people who were shocked that we would edit the human species so that we would be less susceptible to a virus paused for a minute. And they asked your question, Mara. Well, remind me again, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't we be using it to edit the human species so we're less susceptible to viruses? So that's the question my book explores, but I don't give an answer at the end. I have everybody march hand in hand with George Church and Jennifer Doudna and Eric Lander, who's going to be the president's science advisor, and all these people wrestling with this issue, including Chinese scientists I interviewed. And they're all saying, where are we going to draw the lines and why? And if you ask a George Church, you'll say, well, I'd go all the way. I'd give my kids more IQ points. I would make them taller and more muscular. And he says, what's wrong with making better children? But I would say, you know, I'm not sure we want the rich to buy better genes for their children. I'm not sure we want to edit out the diversity of our society. So where I come down is, yeah, we should use it to fight deadly diseases, but not to enhance uh, the human race. Now, there are a lot of blurry lines there. At some point, we may want to cross those lines and say, why not enhance the human race? But I want the reader to think this through, because all of us, me and you and our listeners, are all going to, in the next decade or so, have to have an informed opinion by this. And it's a slippery slope. So we should do it cautiously, step by step, and preferably hand in hand. You mentioned Eric Lander, and uh, I often say to people, uh, whether you're male or female, you, you may be just learning science, you may be learning engineering, whatever you're doing, but whatever you're going to do, you better develop a tough skin. In the scientific community, this can come in many ways, and I'm thinking of Eric Lander here, a very well-known, famous, tremendous scientist. He wrote an essay in the journal Cell in about the 2015, 2016, so we're talking, you know, three or four years after all of the papers and the patents have come to light. And that essay was The Heroes of CRISPR. And it was quite controversial. In fact, it perhaps was extremely difficult for uh, Jennifer Dowden. What Heroes of CRISPR did was present a very well-reported very nuanced history of how CRISPR as a gene editing tool was discovered and then re-engineered. 
starting with the Spanish graduate student, Francisco Mojica, wonderful guy in Alciante, Spain, who notices these sequences in bacteria in the 1990s, all the way to the present. And if you read it, it has some spin to it. It tends to elevate uh, the importance of Fong Zhang and the Broad Institute, which Eric was then the director of, and tended to minimize uh, the contributions of Jennifer Doudna. And there were a couple problems with that. One is he was in the middle of this patent battle where his institute was fighting for the patent, and that was not mentioned by the journal. Uh, secondly, it sort of echoed what happened to Rosalind Franklin and many other women in science, which is when men write the history of science, they minimize the role of the women. That said, Eric is an incredibly smart person. He's very driven. That competitiveness that caused him to maybe uh, put a little bit of spin in that story is also the competitiveness that allowed him to build the Broad Institute into the most important institute in this country for translating genetic basic research into medicines that can help patients. And it will be a great asset when he becomes the chief science advisor to the president. But, you know, it did cause a bit of a kerfuffle in the world of science because it was Eric showing his slightly competitive side, perhaps even unwittingly. I mean, I think uh, I like Eric Lander a lot, and I think that aggressive competitiveness is a good thing. I also think that Jennifer Doudna is a very competitive person. And sometimes people say that as if that's a flaw. I'm going, yeah, you're right. She should thank you. She is, and that's a great thing about her. So I like competitive people. I'll, I like Jennifer, and I like Eric. And the fact that they got into a kerfluffle and over this piece, uh, well, it makes for a good chapter in my book. Let's get back to where we started. And uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, which creates the COVID-19 uh, disease in humans, it's a single-stranded RNA virus. Ooh, that RNA word again. Um, and we now have three vaccines approved in the U.S., Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. And they're all genetically engineered, as just about everything you do these days is. But the CRISPR-Cas9 tool is what we're talking about. Did it play a part in the development of any of these vaccines? CRISPR specifically was not directly a part of these three vaccines. And the CRISPR part of it has helped create these coronavirus and COVID testing kits that are much better than the clunky PCR tests that cycle through different temperatures. And they'll be part of these home uh, biology devices you'll have on your counter in which is like home pregnancy tests, but you'll be able to test every morning if you want for does my kid have strep throat, you know, a little bit of saliva and a cartridge. You can see if a cancer cells of a tumor that you've had are recirculating again. You can see if you've got the coronavirus. And people will build apps on it and do things like figure out what's in your gut microbiome and whether you should eat better yogurt or something. So uh, CRISPR, uh, the use of RNA in CRISPR and the use of RNA in these messenger RNA vaccines are both examples of the versatility 
of what I consider to be the star molecule of my book, which is the wonderful molecule of RNA. Well, Walter, thank you so much. I also have questions I've left on the table here, as always. I really appreciate you coming in. I hope you come back. See us again. I love your show. What a great way to end this program. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mara. My guest today is Walter Isaacson. His book is The Code Breaker. Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft also heads the XPRIZE COVID Pandemic Task Force. In an earlier program, we talked about its $6 million rapid COVID screening XPRIZE. I thought it was time for an update. So back in the spring of 2020, I was asked to help start the uh, XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance and to chair the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance Task Force. And the sort of meta idea there is that in the setting of this pandemic, we need to solve things in a collaborative way and faster way. So we have over 100 organizations that have joined this alliance to think differently about how we address everything from PPE to testing to therapeutics to mental health. And one of the, of course, big challenges, particularly, uh, you know, throughout the year and still today is the challenge of, of testing. Um, uh, even uh, today, you know, more than a year into the pandemic, it still can take days to get your results back. It's still quite expensive, sometimes over $100 per test. Um, those tests are still not often easy. You might remember the, the swab in your nose feels like it going to the back of your brain. So in late spring of last year, I was contacted by Jeff Huber, who's a, a well-known uh, technologist, was with Google, uh, went on to, to found a company called Grail, which is doing early cancer detection, um, uh, kind of catalyzed, unfortunately, his, his, his wife had passed away from cancer at a young age. So Jeff Huber came to me with his concept and a new group he's formed called Open COVID Screen with the concept that what we really need are tests that are really cheap, i.e. I less than the cup of a, less than the cost of a latte at our Starbucks that are easy to do. I mean, you can do it yourself, maybe in the privacy of your own home, um, that you can do frequently, maybe once or twice a week that you might need to do at a school or workplace and are easy, don't require a clinician to do it. So we call it fast, frequent, cheap, and easy. Um, you can think of other other fields that like that moniker, but in the setting of testing, uh, that's what's sort of really needed. And many of the tests uh, that have been out there are not fast. They're not uh, frequent because it takes days or you need a central facility. Uh, they're not cheap and they're, they're not easy to do. So we uh, collaborated with the XPRIZE to form a uh, actually a $6 million XPRIZE for rapid COVID testing, for fast, frequent, cheap, and easy COVID testing. Uh, and we launched that with several partners, including uh, Anthem, uh, the Blues Plans from several organizations, uh, from the COVID Apollo Project made up of investor groups and supporting partners from everyone from Google to Illumina to Amazon to Thermo Fisher. So how was the response? The response was incredible. I mean, what, what an XPRIZE often does, for folks who aren't familiar, go to XPRIZE.org, is it, it spurs innovation particularly where there's market gaps, uh, to try and do things that are audacious but achievable. And in this case, what we wanted to do is catalyze new thinking for rapid uh, COVID testing. Over 707 teams applied from, I think, 72 countries. Um, So we narrowed down that group uh, through a a process of of the teams that qualified down to about 200. They all received um, blinded test kits. So we sent them basically, uh, let's say, saliva or nose swab samples uh, and they were blinded. We saw, how did they do on this sort of first screen? That brought us to our, our final 20 uh, 
leading uh, teams from all over the world. And the top 20 had their tests evaluated in actual physical centers. One was uh, led at, at Wild Cornell Medical Center uh, by uh, Professor Chris Mason and colleagues. And we're now, uh, as of last uh, mid-March, have just announced the, the winners of, of the winning teams. There are, are nine winning teams. Uh, the, the first group are more classic ones using uh, you know, PCR and RNA uh, or antigen uh, testing. And then we had an open innovation uh, track, meaning teams that would come you know, out of the box, uh, not your usual approach. And what was amazing about the teams, um, some of them are using pretty standard technologies, but they package them in, in really incredible ways. Um, and I'll just run through a couple of the, of the winners. Um, one of the uh, top winners called Chromacode uh, doesn't just do the sort of PCR chemistry, but has created a whole sort of cloud-based system. So you can very rapidly scale on almost any sort of PCR machine you know, their best reagents with the ability to quickly get the results into the crowd uh, and install it quickly and revise it. Sometimes there are different strains, new tests that might be needed. Uh, they work with Amazon Web Services, et cetera. So blending not just the physical test, but the data infrastructure and the reporting uh, to very quickly get out there. And they're not only just doing uh, coronavirus, but they're doing sort of multispectral PCR where they can, in a single test, screen for multiple types of influenza, for RSV, which often infects kids, for other forms of SARS, like uh, like the, 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 the more fatal form of SARS-CoV-1. Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting example of these tests are going to go on, hopefully past this pandemic, to be useful in a whole bunch of other settings. Another group uh, came out of La Jolla Institute, where their theme is Life Without Disease, and they, they developed a one-step uh, PCR assay uh, just using saliva. So uh, just using saliva samples that, you know, a kid or anybody can do, uh, they, they can take those saliva samples very quickly, heat and activate them, put them through a PCR run, get the data, and it comes down to a price less than a cup of coffee, $1.28 per sample uh, when they get to scale. So that is going to be to give us the ability, particularly in the schools and workplaces where you want to do um, hundreds of individuals, sometimes on a very frequent basis, to do that at you know uh, less than a dollar fifty a sample. And how long would that sample take? They get the results in in less than four hours. Um, so it's the kind of element where you might have a school and you can often do what's called pooling. You don't need to do a separate test tube for everybody. You can often pull those together and let's say an entire classroom. And if someone's positive, then you you dive you, uh, dive in and further. So they had a lot of other innovation around how you make it. Uh, you know, no requirement to extract the RNA or the DNA. Very inexpensive lysis, very inexpensive tube. So again, sometimes it's not about the actual chemistry, but how you package uh, that together. And eventually, these are sorts of things that you could have, you know, in almost any lab or even in your own own, own home. A third example as a company uh, that has built a whole platform where it is called the Be Well Analyzer, B Well, and it's uh, almost like an Apple esque phone like looking cartridge, uh, a reusable sort of phone type platform and these uh, disposable cartridges and a little nose swab. Again, you can do it at home. You put it in this little microfluidics cartridge and it does the analysis in uh, just a few minutes. It works with your synced phone app and can report whether you're positive or negative and then share that with your clinician or the public health authority. So really a nice, elegant consumer version uh, of that sort of technology. Not necessarily yet quite less than a cup of coffee, but kind of the integration and the kind of consumerization of testing that again will be useful not in the future, not just for, again, coronavirus, but could detect the common cold or influenza or potentially non-infectious diseases. A couple last ones I'll mention. Um, Miramis out of New York City has already been in, in many schools. Uh, they, I think they've done millions of tests where they do this sort of pooling approach. They get quick saliva samples from, let's say, a whole classroom. They pool those together 
and then they rapidly can identify uh, any uh, positive batches and then really quickly narrow down that to individuals. And what's impressive about that company uh, is they've got the test down you know, from the standard $100 of tests to uh, around 15, and they're already scaling that across schools and other groups around the company, a co- country in the US. And it's gonna be the kind of example where it's gonna really help unlock safe schools, workplaces, um, and uh, can be scaled you know, around the world in, uh, in interesting elements. The last one I'll mention in the more of the standard category is doing more of the what's called antigen uh, type screening. It's called VCheck from a company called Reliable LFC. And they developed what kind of looks like a pregnancy test strip where you just dip some of the saliva in that from buffer that you take from a nasal swab. And in less than one minute with a little box, you get the results. So really good for a school setting, for a home setting. Uh, and I think something that uh, is early in development but has the opportunity to scale very quickly. The sort of separate category were sort of the outliers developing maybe tests that were not in the usual spectrum. And some of these are really fascinating. One's called Steradian Technologies. They've developed a portable single-step diagnostic test, and it basically takes a small amount of, it almost looks like a little handheld um, pistol. You basically put a little bit of uh, saliva into this handheld device, um, and inside of the device, uh, it uses something called photonic amplification, uh, can amplify any sort of signal to multiple types of potential infections. And when those sort of signals are there, they sort of light up and the detector can, can amplify that signal. So with this little portable handheld device in 30 seconds without a lab, they can detect bacteria, viruses, biomarkers. Um, and it's going to be exciting kind of platform that, again, goes beyond COVID. But as a prize winner from the XPRIZE, will hopefully catalyze them into many other settings. And I think that's the kind of new thinking we have. Um, a final uh, winner comes out of um, Israel called Terra Biosafety, and they're using this new form of, of measurement, terahertz. Uh, it's, on the, it's on the energy spectrum, and they uh, enable anybody to just do some breath into a little handheld uh, cheap cartridge. That cartridge goes into a larger machine, and within seconds, using terahertz technologies, they can diagnose COVID and other viruses. So those are some interesting examples of outside-the-box the furthest outside the box is a company called You Smell It. And I think you've heard of the, <laughs> the fact that many patients in early early on in their COVID diagnosis have what's called anosomia. They lose their sense of smell. And You Smell It has developed a very low-cost card. I think it's less than a dollar, uh, together with a sort of app. And you can just screen your smelling. And many folks, the very first uh, sign that they have, you know, pre-symptomatic uh, COVID and when they might be moving into the realm where they'll be infectious is smell. So another example of a smart way to do early diagnostics with an outside-the-box set of thinking. And beyond these winners, I mean, some of the other competitors were incredible using, you know, voice as a biomarker. The sound of your cough or your breath uh, might be used to distinguish between a a, a normal cough, a COVID cough, or one from a common cold. So I think we're really entering this interesting time where a lot of these innovations catalyzed by COVID will will have downstream benefits across diagnostics and, and democratizing healthcare around the world. I keep thinking of all the people working in their dens or their garages or their back rooms or the corner of their bedrooms uh, or small companies that they're trying to do this, trying to do this, and they are just just really working hard. Without something like this X Prize, it all couldn't come together. We wouldn't have the visibility. We wouldn't be able to see that. The innovation that will come out of the fact that there there is this visibility and that all of these people can now see each other and the world can see them actually is an essential part in the innovation cycle. Exactly. It's not just the winners. What's interesting about XPRIZE is the very first Ansari XPRIZE to get a non-NASA rocket into space, you know, uh, 100 kilometers. That helped spur 
things like SpaceX and other elements, even the, the non quote unquote final finalist winners have gone on to do some amazing things. And the setting here, you know, not, uh, the, 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 the prize money in this case was, is $6 million. So these teams, the finalists are going to, the final winners will get half a million dollars and then they'll get an additional half a million dollars once they go out into these field sites, uh, where they're going to prove out that it can work in the setting of a stadium or a school or a workplace. Um, and uh, I think the Visibility X Prize will help amplify some of these uh, best of breed solutions forward. If anyone's interested in learning more about any of the specific winners, just go to xprize.org slash testing, and you can learn about them in detail. And we have several other interesting X Prizes, uh, some we've already done, like on better forms of, of masks designed by college students and, and earlier. Others focused on data and how we open up society better. And there's some other uh, bigger X Prizes. Elon Musk is sponsoring a $100 million X Prize for the ability to do carbon sequestration, which is hopefully a, a key uh, uh, ability to, to reverse global warming. So um, in whatever you're doing, you can think about prize models. And, and this is, I think, a, an effective one in the setting of, of COVID. If you go to xprize.org slash testing, backslash testing, you can see who the finalists are. The, the finalists uh, in the main category uh, all are going to receive half a million dollars and then another half a million dollars when they show they're able to scale at various uh, actual physical test sites in the real world. Um, and then the open innovation teams uh, all shared an additional million dollars. And I think hopefully those dollars won't just uh, go to having a good celebration, but are going to help continue to develop these technologies. And again, we'll um, hopefully catalyze solutions uh, across pandemic diseases, uh, but others as well. Well, I'd have to think of what a million dollar celebration would look like. But I think if I did, I'd, I'd call Elon Musk and he'd, he'd probably have one for me. <laughs> If you need any help, uh, yeah, I've got good ideas of how to have a good million-dollar party. But you don't need a million dollars uh, just for celebration or even to develop a new technology. What's exciting today with this convergence of exponential technologies that you can put in your garage, from 3D printing to even doing genetic engineering to you know computer-aided design and AI platforms, we can really accelerate innovation and this whole you know almost do-it-yourself movement, the DIY movement, whether you're 3D printing uh, a mask for, for, for PPE or you're 3D printing a microfluidic channel to do a COVID test, it's really, a, I think, a, a really an exciting age to be an innovator where you, don't, you no longer require the million-dollar lab uh, or academic institution to back up and uh, be able to move things forward. Well, thanks for coming in, Daniel. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos, and audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.